This is Money Guide with Mary Stirk from Stirk Financial Services. Now, here's Mary Stirk. Welcome to Money Guide with Mary Stirk, and today we're talking about the truth about investment fees. This is kind of a hot topic for people. We hear a lot of people talking about fees. There's a lot of buzz in the industry about fears. There's a lot of bashing in the news about fees. And I think that it's a topic that we want to shed some light on. So with me today, I have certified financial planner, Kelsey Banky, and we're going to talk about the truth about investment fees. Thanks, Mary. I think that one of the areas that the biggest lack of information out there is about understanding fees actually comes from mutual funds. So that's what I want to dive into first is how mutual funds actually charge fees. Um, so the first thing to know and understand about mutual funds is that mutual funds come in something called a share class. And a share class just means the bucket of money inside that mutual fund that um, they're, they're grouped in with. And the different buckets or the different share classes have different expense ratios inside them. So it might be the exact same mutual fund, but your share class is going to have its own fee structure, which is going to be different from people in the exact same mutual fund and a different share class. So there's step one of confusing information for investors to understand. <laughs> <laughs> so if you say I have, you know, whatever XYZ fund, uh, that is true, but there's more to it. Which class of XYZ fund do you have? Right. Um, that's the, the full story that someone would need to know to be able to start diving into what their fee structure actually is for that fund. Now, it's kind of comical about share classes is that there's a whole bunch of them. So it used to be that there was A shares, and then they introduced B shares, and then C shares, and then now there's things like F1, 2, 3, 4 shares, there's R shares, there's I shares, there's institutional shares. So it's a little bit crazy when it comes down to it. <laughs> about yeah, trying to figure out there's there's dozens for some some fun families it's uh yep interesting from my end but I'm sure very very confusing for a consumer so I want to talk about the most common ones because I think that that's what's going to hit home for most of the people listening to this let's just say that you have an a share okay an a share is the most commonly purchased mutual fund for the average investor and there are two different types of fees that A shares have. In fact, that many mutual funds have. There's what's called a, a sales charge, and then there's something that's called an internal expense fee. The sales charge is something that might be charged when you purchase it, or it might be charged when you sell it and get out of it. So that's one thing to understand about the sales charge. Not every single share class has a sales charge, but many of them do. So in particular, if you're buying an A share, the average A share probably has an upfront sales charge of around five and a half percent. For every hundred dollars that you put into an A share, you're going to spend around five dollars and fifty cents for the sales charge. It's going to come right out of the account. It's not money you have to put on top of what you invest. It comes out of the investment itself. $5.50 doesn't sound like a lot of money until you start talking about larger amounts. So let's say you put a $1,000 into something. Now it's a $55 charge. And let's say that you put $10,000 into something. 
Well, now you're talking about a $550 charge. So the amount of the sales charge obviously is going to get bigger with the larger amount of money that you put in. And a 5.5% sales charge can start to add up. It can add up really quickly, but this is the probably the one fee people are most aware that right. is out there. And the reason for that is, is this one actually shows right up on your statement. Mm-hmm. So um, you don't have to look very hard to see that this is being applied to your account um, because it's, it's right there on every statement. So every deposit that you make into an A-share fund or something that has an upfront sales charge Um, You should be able to see that right on your statement that each deposit went in, part of the money was invested, part of the money went toward the fee. um, And that one is, for the most part, pretty transparent. Right. Now, not everything has an upfront sales charge. Sometimes some people got frustrated with these upfront sales charges on A shares. So that's why B shares were created. And B shares, you are kind of thinking about it synonymously. B stands for back end charge. So a B share has a back-end charge. There's no sales charge when you put your money in. And then the charge when you take your money out diminishes as time goes by. So it might take, say, seven years for a B share to get to a point where there's no charge if you take your money out. The first year, maybe it's a 7% fee if you take it out. The next year, it may be a 6 The next year, maybe 5 They're all different, so this is just an example. But in the B share, once you've held it for long enough, you can sell it and not have a sales charge at all. And so that starts to look like something that's a really good idea. If you just are going to leave your money invested in something for long enough, you can avoid this sales charge, right? Not so. (laughs) And this is where the smoke and mirrors of investing with mutual funds comes in is that the sales charge is completely different from something called the internal expense charge. So in a typical A share, the internal expense charge that something that you don't see on the statement like Kelsey just referenced is typically around, say, 1%, okay? So if you have a 1% internal expense charge, it's something that gets taken out before your returns are credited. So you literally never see it on a statement. And I think, Kelsey, that's one of the reasons that people get very confused about this. Absolutely, because unless you know where to look for that charge, it's something that on your statement, you might not ever really see um, because they're not, it's not a line item. So unlike right. the, the upfront charge um, or back end charge, if you happen to do something to cause that to happen on those B shares or funds that have that, the internal expense is invisible for yeah, exactly. <laughs> lack of better words. So unless you're going to dive deep down into that prospectus and, and find it, and, and first of all, know that you need to go find that. Um, and you, you might be unaware that that's happening. Right. So the internal expense fee is comprised of a couple of different things. The internal expense pays the fund company for buying and selling any stocks or bonds that are inside the actual fund itself. And then there's also a component of it that's called a 12B1 fee, which is considered a marketing expense. And, and that marketing expense or that 12B1 fee is typically a, a pretty good share of that goes to your advisor to actually help manage the funds for you. That's how they get paid on an ongoing basis is through that. So the typical A share internal expense is around 1%. The typical B-share expense is around 2%. So here's where the gotcha game happens with mutual funds. In the A-share, if you pay your upfront sales charge, then your internal expense is lower, maybe only 1%. 
In the B share, you didn't pay that upfront sales charge, but your internal expense is higher, let's say 2%. And it's a percent of the actual account value that you have. So you might go into the B share thinking, oh, if I just hold this for seven years and then sell it, I won't have this charge. But if you do that and you pay an extra percent every year for seven years while you're holding it on the internal expense side, not only have you paid that sales charge, but you've paid way more. And if the account value actually grows, which, you know, that's kind of the point, right? <laughs> for the money to grow. If it grows, then the difference in total fees becomes even much more exaggerated. So B shares look like a good idea for a lot of investors, but the smoke and mirrors inside of the way the expenses work make them not a good idea for most investors. It makes them an incredibly expensive choice when it comes down to it. In fact, it's so much so that a lot of the companies have taken their B shares off the market because SEC and FINRA has come in and said, you better prove that this is the right thing for investors and that you've disclosed all this to them. And it's really hard to make a case for them. <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, you can't get them out of them early because they have the charge. And if you stay in them too long, you might as well have done an A share um, mm -hmm. situation and most likely would have saved money. So uh, not a, a strong case for B shares. Um, definitely moving forward. If you have them in your portfolio, you have to evaluate whether you should continue to hold them or whether it's smart to move out of them, um, but most likely not a, a strong reason to add new money to those. Now, C shares is the other more common share class that's out there, and the C share tends to have no upfront sales charge, but it does have that higher internal expense ratio of generally around 2%. But the, the, one of the differences between the B share and the C share is when the B share is done and their time period is up, typically that internal expense will go down to that of the A share. It might flip down. The C share internal expense is not designed to necessarily flip down like the B share does. Um, so the C share can be expensive over time too, just like the B share. But the C share has a specific place in the portfolio. It's a less expensive way to go if you think you're going to have money in the market for a short amount of time or in the investment for a short amount of time. If your time horizon is, let's say, between three to six years or something like that, your overall expenses might be less in the C share than that of the A share. But if you start going out much beyond that, then the net cost of the A share, even with that upfront sales charge, really does start to play into your favor, especially if the account value is growing. So your share class does need to have some connection with your amount of time that you're going to leave your money invested. Now, the last share class that I want to mention um, to talk about is what's called institutional shares. And institutional shares typically have a much, much, much lower internal expense ratio than A, B, or C shares. So institutional shares have typically only been available to investors inside mega portfolios. So maybe you would need to have $25 million to be able to get into an institutional share. However, the nice thing about institutional shares is that they've been opened up to investors if you're using certain types of investment vehicles. And you can access that same fund, but the institutional share has no sales charges up front or on the back end. It doesn't have the 12B1 fees that are there to, you know, pay your advisor or things like that. And the internal expense ratio is much lower. So, for instance, an A share's internal expense ratio might be 1%, but the institutional share class might be a quarter of a percent or something like that. 
So they, the institutional share class usage can radically reduce your internal expense charges that you are probably not even aware that you're paying anyway. Welcome back to Money Guide with Mary Stirk, and today we're talking about the truth about investment fees. We spent some time talking about how mutual fund fees actually work, and I want to talk about a couple of other kind of investment vehicles to help people understand the truth about the investment fees inherent in those. So, Kelsey, let's talk a little bit about stock purchases. If you have an account and all you have in it are stocks, then what are the fees associated with a stock account? So typically with a stock account, there's going to be some kind of charge to trade into or out of a stock. Right. That cost is going to completely vary by company who's doing that for you. And I've seen this fee be all over the board. Right. <laughs> so um, I had a, a gentleman come in not too long ago and he was paying 500 and something dollars per transaction. And I was like, <laughs> That's probably the highest I've seen, but um, I couldn't really get out of uh, the documentation he had brought what what might have all been to that, but that that was what he was getting charged for getting in and out of a position. So yeah, that's crazy. Be very very aware of what you're paying there, but it is normally a per transaction cost. So there's not really an ongoing expense to hold those in a, a stock account um, that the transactions cost you. Where you do sometimes get hit, though, with something in a stock account that's unexpected is something called an inactivity fee. So -hmm. let's say that you have your stock sitting in a brokerage account with a company and you don't do any trading for a year or two. A lot of times those companies will have something called an inactivity fee. And and I think it was just created so that companies could make money (laughs) because otherwise they literally make nothing on that account. So an inactivity fee might be 50 or $75 in any year that you don't do a transaction, don't do any type of trading. So that's something that you have to be aware of if you have that type of an account. Now, the next type of account I want to talk about is called a managed account. And a managed account is something that fiduciaries tend to use more often. Managed accounts are fee-based accounts where you're actually paying a fee for someone to help manage your money for you. These types of accounts are the most transparent because all of the fees are very clear. So flipping back to what we talked to you about institutional share classes, most of the time institutional share classes are being utilized inside managed accounts where they can be. So if you are using a managed account and you're paying a fee for someone to manage the money, they're usually trying to source institutional share classes to keep the internal expense of any funds or ETS down to as low as possible. But a managed account fee is going to be dependent on how much money you have invested in the managed account. It can range anywhere from a quarter of a percent up to two and a half percent. And how much you're paying in that fee is going to be dependent on what your agreement with your advisor is. You usually see fees graduate down. So the more money that you have in the account, the lower the fee actually is going to be. So that's kind of a nice provision of it. Yeah, nice thing about this is, um, you know, if you're not getting charged for transactions um, and it's just a a management expense for the year, um, it, it, can keep you focused on that this is a transaction that I, I, you know, if your advisor calls and says, I think I want to do this transaction, 
you can feel a little more peace of mind that they're not just trying to generate more fees right. mm-hmm. <laughs> um, on the transactional charges for you. And they're, they're most likely making that decision based on uh, fund performance or asset allocation or something else like that, that is designed to actually make your portfolio perform well. And again, not just generate um, expense and, and compensation for them. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times we've heard people say that the only time that their advisor contacts them is when they want to trade something and then there's fees. And that's not the right agenda within your relationship with your advisor. You really want to have the same agenda, which is let's maximize performance and growth of this account. And if the fee that you're paying is not contingent upon how many trades are being done, then you're in alignment because they're trying to grow the account and they're getting a percentage of the account as their fee you're on the right side of the table with that one. Now, one of the things that sometimes surprises people, though, that can happen even inside of managed accounts is that there might be an annual fee that is associated with it being an IRA. So brokerage accounts, managed accounts, a lot of different accounts have some type of annual maintenance fee if it is an IRA because that company has to do reporting to the IRS. So, of course, they charge for it. And Reporting fees for this are usually like $35 or $50 per account, but it catches people off guard because they don't necessarily know that retirement accounts might carry that extra maintenance fee. Yeah, this is um, one of those things that if you have a lot of accounts out there that are IRAs um, and not a lot of reason why you have a lot of accounts, um, you know, there's not a, a rhyme and reason to it, then consolidation might help you save on some fees. Um, because, you know, if you have $5,000 at this mutual fund company, $10,000 at that mutual fund company, and they're both IRAs, you're paying a custodial fee most likely at both places. Right. Had, had it all been in one place, you wouldn't be paying. So just one thing to think about if you have multiple accounts out there on some of the benefits of consolidation. So one of the things that's kind of a common misconception is that if you invest your money in the bank, there's no fees. And while there's not necessarily an outright fee or a line item fee, I think it is important to understand how banks do make money when you have your money in the bank. So let's think about it like this. Let's say you had $100,000 and you wanted to go invest it into a CD. And you're going to put it in a CD and and let's say that you get an especially good CD right now and they're going to pay you 2%. So you give them your 100000 for a year and a half, and they're going to give you 2% interest on it. Now, the way that this works in banks is then that 100000 now becomes available for them to loan to other people, right? So if they're going to loan that 100000 out to somebody else, the bank is going to loan it and charge that person interest. Well, that person's interest is, let's say it's going to be 6%, okay? They're certainly not loaning it out for the amount of money that you're paying you to hold it for you. So the spread between the two things, the amount they're paying you for deposits and the amount they're loaning money for is where banks typically make a lot of their money. All right. I I do want to just highlight something funny that I found online because when I was doing some research to put this show together, I was thinking about, well, what is out there in the world about, you know, what are investors reading about fees? And I came across this post, which I thought was funny because the title of it was, Here are five ways to reduce the outrageous fees charged by the investment industry. And the first one that they said was don't buy mutual funds, (laughs) which 
I think it's funny because mutual funds are a multi-billion dollar industry and there is many, many layers of diversity in mutual funds and so many arguments can be made that they could be a good investment for somebody. Right. So, if they were a horrible thing, there wouldn't be, you know, right? thousands of funds out there. <laughs> so for the advice to be just don't buy them, I think is kind of ridiculous. Another thing was don't trade. So again, if you buy a stock and never trade it, yes, you're going to avoid fees. But what if your stock is terrible, then you're letting the fee tail wag the performance dog. And that's not what you want to do. So I thought that one was kind of funny. Another one is choose stocks over closed-end funds, which may be an effective strategy. But let me tell you that it's not a diversified strategy if you're going to buy just a small handful of stocks instead of a closed-end fund that might have hundreds of different stocks inside of it. So again, you're letting the expense fee wag the diversity dog. And we really don't want to do that. You really want to have a blended look at making sure you're looking at performance and fees and taxes and things like that when you're choosing your investments. So I just thought that that was kind of interesting because, um, all of these things that are out there in the news about fees are really not necessarily good blanket advice when it comes to individual investors. So choose your advice carefully. Don't just read something online and assume that it's true. Find somebody that you trust to work with who's willing to explain to you how fees work and then invest your money in an educated way. When you understand the truth about investment fees, you're understanding your way to a better portfolio management system. So thanks for listening to Money Guide with Mary Stirk. The views expressed are not necessarily the opinion of your audio provider and should not be construed directly or indirectly as an offer to buy or sell any securities or services mentioned herein. Investing is subject to risks, including loss of principal invested. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. No strategy can assure a profit nor protect against loss. Please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should only be relied upon when coordinated with individual professional advice. Securities and investment advisory services are offered through Woodbury Financial Services, Inc., member FINRA, SIPC. Insurance offered through Sturk Financial Services, which is not affiliated with Woodbury Financial. Sturk Financial Services is located at 350 Oak Tree Lane, Suite 150, Dakota Dune, South Dakota, 57049, and can be reached at 605-217-3555.